Audio number 63, Congregation of the Dead, part 47. Is the conviction of original sin as sin in our lives inseparable from faith in the righteousness of God? Proverbs 21, 16. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3, 2. Before we begin this message, let us first listen to some excerpts of the Confessions of St. Augustine or St. Augustine, who lived from 354 A.D. to 430 A.D. and in Algeria was a bondage of the will theologian at odds with the freedom of the will theologian Pelagius. Martin Luther, the king of the Reformation, which began in 1517 and spread through Europe, culminating 100 years later in 1620 with the pilgrims coming to America, wrote, that is, Martin Luther, a bondage of the will theologian, wrote against Erasmus, who wrote the book, Freedom of the Will. Throughout Martin Luther's writings, Luther writes, Blessed St. Augustine, Blessed St. Augustine, showing us that St. Augustine or St. Augustine had much influence upon Martin Luther. Martin Luther's bondage of the will reformation was ignited in 1517 when Martin Luther put 95 complaints against the Catholic Church on the Wittenberg door. This document was called the 95 Thesis. What do we as natural man Americans think were Martin Luther's top four complaints? Let us find out. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17. When Jesus says, repent, Jesus willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Number three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. We call that the evil proclivities of our heart, repenting over the evil proclivities of our heart. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance, such as inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. In other words, it we should be cutting down on our acts of sin because when we repent over the evil proclivities of our heart, we are repenting over them before they become an act of sin. And thus, we are heading our acts of sin off at the past. And the fourth, the penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self, that is, true inner repentance, namely till our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So 
the evil proclivities of our heart will always be there. They're ineradicable. Therefore, we will always be repenting over them. The Apostle Paul says, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. My evil proclivities of my heart are always with me. Even when I pray, I sin. For I may be thinking of how good I sound, and thus pride welling up in my heart, etc. Before we as Americans ever pick up our Bible to meditate upon it, repentance is necessary if we want to have fellowship with Christ as the Holy Spirit teaches us. The same is true before we listen to a message preach. Psalm 139 and Psalm 151 are excellent psalms which will direct us how to repent. Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Verse 24, And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It is through repentance that we draw nigh to our Lord Jesus Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. You can look up Psalm 51 on your own time. St. Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Bunyan John Bunyan, being the author of Pilgrim's Progress, agonized for years over their sin before they entered in at the straight gate and were converted. God used all three of these men mightily in the bondage of the will movement. Therefore, let us not as natural men Americans be discouraged if it seems like forever before Jesus will find us and his Father in heaven will reveal him to us. Jesus said, to Peter and his disciples the following, Matthew 27, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14. And they, the disciples, said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15. But Jesus saith unto them, But whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven revealed me or Jesus to you. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Most of us natural men Americans only know the Son of Man, for we cannot know the Son of God because the Son of God is spiritual. And it is not until we become a spiritual new creation 
that our Father in heaven reveals to us the Son of God. That is why the Jews handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. They only knew the Son of Man part of the God-man, Jesus. However, this revelation will never happen until we flee to the righteousness of God. And that won't happen until we begin to feel that the evil proclivities of our heart cannot be eradicated by our fig leaves of morality, leaving us condemned to hell and with only one option available, that is to flee to the righteousness of Christ by faith as our ticket into heaven. Or in other words, believe by faith Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us as our ticket into heaven. So then repentance over the evil proclivities of our heart is where we begin in order to find our way to the wicked gate. Therefore, as we listen to St. Augustine talk about his sins, his evil sin nature, let his word jog us and make us think with a repentant heart about our own evil sin nature. Now, let us commence with an excerpt from the Confessions of St. Augustine. Quote, Behold, and this is St. Augustine speaking, Behold, with what companions I walked the streets of Babylon and wallowed in the mire thereof, as if in a bed of spices and precious ointments, and that I might cleave the faster to its very center. The invisible enemy trod me down and seduced me, for that I was easy to be seduced. Neither did the mother of my flesh, who had now fled out of the center of Babylon, yet went more slowly in the skirts thereof as she advised me to chastity. So heed what she had heard of me from her husband as to restrain within the bounds of conjugal affections if it could not be pared away to the quick. What she felt to be pestilent at present and for the future dangerous. She heeded not this, for she feared lest a wife should prove a clog and a hindrance to my hopes, not those hopes of the world to come, which my mother reposed in thee, but the hope of learning, which both my parents were too desirous I should attain. My father, because he had next to no thought of thee and of me, but vain conceits. My mother, because she accounted that those usual courses of learning would not only be no hindrance, but even some furtherance towards attaining thee. For thus I conjecture, recalling as well as I may, the disposition of my parents, the reins meantime, were slackened to me beyond all temper of due severity to spend my time in sport, yea, even unto dissoluteness in whatsoever I affected. And in all was a mist intercepting from me. Oh, my God, the brightness of thy truth and my iniquity burst out as from very fatness, Theft is punished by thy law, O Lord, and the law written in the hearts of men, which iniquity effaces not. For what thief will abide a thief? 
not even a rich thief, one stealing through want. Yet I lusted to thieve and did it, compelled by no hunger, no poverty, but through a cloyedness of well-doing and a pamperedness of iniquity, for I stole that of which I had enough and much better, nor cared I to enjoy what I stole, but joyed in the theft and sin itself. A pear tree there was near our vineyard, laden with fruit, tempting neither for color nor taste, to shake and rob this. Some lewd young fellows of us went late one night, having, according to our pestilent custom, prolonged our sports in the streets till then, and took huge loads, not for our eating, but to fling to the very hogs, having only tasted them, and this, but to do what we liked only, because it was misliked. Behold my heart, O God, behold my heart, which thou hast pity upon in the bottom of the bottomless pit. Now behold, let my heart tell thee what it sought there, that I should be gratuitously evil, having no temptation to ill, but the ill itself, it was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved mine own fault, not that for which I was faulty, but my fault itself, foul soul, falling from thy firmament to utter destruction, not seeking aught through the shame, but the shame itself. For there is an attractiveness in beautiful bodies, in gold and silver and all things, and in bodily touch. Sympathy have much influence, and each other sense hath his proper object answerably tempered. Worldly honor hath also its grace and the power of overcoming and mastery, which springs also the thirst of revenge. But yet, to obtain all these, we may not depart from thee, O Lord, nor decline from thy law. Let us stop there, and we will continue with St. Augustine's Confession of Sin at the end of this message. And now let us commence with the message. Audio number 63, Congregation of the Dead, part 47. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. In our last message, we found that it is dangerous for us natural men Americans to commence our journey to the wicked gate as Pliable did in Pilgrim's Progress as he tagged along with Christian to the wicked gate, but had no burden on his back as Christian did. And thus, as soon as the two of them found themselves in the slew of Despond, Pliable, instead of trudging forward toward the wicked gate, turned toward home in order to get out of the slough of despond, whereas Christian kept focused on trudging toward the wicked gate, even with the heavy burden upon his back, and the character named Help came and pulled him from the slough of despond. Now let's read from Pilgrim's Progress. Pliable. Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? 
Christian, truly, said Christian, I do not know. Pliable, at that Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness you have told me of all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect twixt this and the end of our journey? If I get out again with my life, you, Christian, shall possess the brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough, which was next to his own house. So away he went. And Christian saw him no more. Wherefore, Christian was left to tumble in the slough of despond alone. But still he endeavored to struggle to that side of the slough that was farthest from his own house and next to the wicket gate, which he did, but could not get out because of the burden that was upon his back. But I beheld in my dream that a man came to him whose name was Help and asked him, what he did there. Christian, sir, said Christian, I was bidden to go this way by a man called Evangelist who directed me also to yonder gate that I might escape the wrath to come. And as I was going thither, I fell in here. Help, but why did you not look for the steps? Christian, fear followed me so hard that I fled the next way and fell in. Help. Then said he, give me thy hand. So he gave him his hand and he drew him out and set him upon some ground and bade him to go on his way. Then I stepped to him that plucked him out and said, Sir, wherefore since over this place is the way from the city of destruction to yonder gate, is it that this plat is not mended, that poor travelers might go and thither with more security? And he said unto me, This miry slough is such place as cannot be mended. It is the descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction of sin doth continually run. And therefore it is called the slough of despond. For still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and settle in this place. And this is the reason of the badness of this ground. All of us elect or beginning to feel the conviction of original sin or like Christian who fled the city of destruction toward the wicked gate to have his burden loose from his back. Each of us who are of God's elect will feel the weight of original sin in differing ways and degrees and for a different time period to reach the wicked gate. Many times those of us who experience the greatest conviction of original sin and for the longest duration are of the elect who will be used the mightiest to bring glory to our Lord Jesus, like St. Augustine and John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan himself, 
who wrote Pilgrim's Progress while in prison for preaching the gospel in England was able to write Pilgrim's Progress because in reality, Pilgrim's Progress parallels his own experience in which he writes in his personal testimony entitled Grace Abounding. The slew of despond parallels his own experience where he was so convicted of his sin nature as sin that he got discouraged believing he may never be saved. If this happens to us natural man Americans, let us be reminded of John Bunyan's and St. Augustine's experience and be encouraged and not discouraged, but to trudge forward as Christian did. For this weight of original sin is so great, there is no trial that would be greater than the weight of the original sin upon our back. Christian explains this to worldly wise men. Christian, a man that appeared to me to be a very great and honorable person. His name, as I remember, is Evangelist. Worldly wise men, avoid him for his counsel. There is not a more dangerous and troublesome way in the world than is that which unto he hath directed thee. And that thou shalt find, if thou wilt be ruled by his counsel, thou hast met with something as I perceive already, for I see the slew of despond upon thee. But that slew is the only beginning of the sorrows that do attend those that go on in that way. Hear me, I am older than thou. Thou art likely to meet with in the way which thou goest wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in a word, death, and what not. These things are certainly true, having been confirmed by many testimonies. And why should a man so carelessly cast away himself by giving heed to a stranger? Christian, why, sir, this burden upon my back is more terrible to me than are all these things which you have mentioned. Nay, methinks I care not what I meet with in the way. If so be, I can also meet with deliverance from my burden. Worldly wise men, how camest thou by thy burden at first? Christian, by reading this book in my hand. Worldly wise men, I thought so. And it has happened unto thee as to other weak men who meddling with things too high for them do suddenly fall into thy distractions, which distractions do not only unman men as thine, I perceive, has done thee, but they run them upon desperate ventures to obtain they know not what. Christian, I know what I would obtain. It is the ease for my heavy burden, worldly wise men. But why wilt thou seek for ease this way, seeing so many dangers attend it, especially since hadst thou but patience to hear me? I could direct thee to obtaining of what thou desirest without the dangers that thou in this way wilt run thyself into. Yea, and the remedy is at hand. Besides, I will add that instead of those dangers, 
Thou shalt meet with much safety, friendship, and content. Christian, sir, I pray, open this secret to me. Now, worldly wise men is going to send him to Mr. Legality's house to have his burden removed by offering him the fig leaves of morality. But Christian knows that the fig leaves of morality by experience can only cover up his burden, easing it in a false way, but it cannot eradicate them. Therefore, as he approaches Mr. Legality's house, because our Lord has been drawing him to the wicked gate, the law is not covering over the evil proclivities of his heart. But the law instead is exposing the evil proclivities of his heart. And thus the original sin on his back is increasing, not decreasing. John Bunyan portrays this in this way. So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he was gotten now hard by the hill, it seemed so high and also the side of it that was next the wayside did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture farther, lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore, there he stood still and knew not what to do. Also his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was in his way. There came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here, therefore, he sweat and did quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. And with that, he saw evangelists coming to meet him at the sight also of whom he began to blush for shame. So Evangelist drew nearer and nearer, and coming up to him, he looked upon him with a severe and dreadful countenance, and thus began to reason with Christian. So if we as natural men Americans are beginning to be convicted of the evil proclivities of our heart, let us not let any fast food free will preacher offer us any fig leaves of morality to ease our burden. But let us continue to trudge towards straight as a gate and narrow is the way that God might remove the burden on our back and not we ourselves remove it, nor any free will fast food preacher remove it. Now, as natural men Americans, we must ask the obvious question. And that is why we as Americans do not even hear of original sin, are not knowledgeable that the fountain of all evil in this world flows right out of our own heart. And why is it that we're not knowledgeable of this, but for the fact that our fast food free will friends put original sin as sin on the back burner. For original sin is sin destroys their free will doctrine for a totally depraved natural man American is incapable of choosing the true Jesus, who is the absolute truth. For all of us natural men Americans are born into this world as liars, and thus will flee from the true Jesus, not flee to him. Thus, our fast food free will preachers or their dupe followers will offer us a fake Jesus, not the true Jesus. So the obvious question before us is this. Is... The conviction of original sin as sin 
and is condemning us to hell, the only way that we can be led to salvation? Answer, yes. Well, why do our fast food free will friends and their fake preachers offer us other shortcut ways to salvation? Answer, all fast food free will preachers are ministers of Satan, which should not alarm us, says former Mr. Fig Leaves of Morality himself, for he himself was one of these fake fast food free will preachers, and he admonishes his brethren in Corinth, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, verse 14, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, verse 15, therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. But common sense tells us, natural men Americans, that we are all liars by nature, and thus God cannot bring a liar into a holy heaven unless he plued up the place. Common sense thus tells us God can only bring holy men into heaven. But how in the world can we be holy if our sin nature is ineradicable? That is pretty simple, is it not? So what is the solution? We have mentioned over and over in these messages that the second Adam, Jesus, came to earth to do what the first Adam failed to do. And what was that? But to keep the moral law for us for 33 years here on earth as a gift to us as our ticket into heaven. This is called the righteousness of God, and we obtain it by faith. But the problem is we innately don't want it because we are innately born into this world believing that our fig leaves of morality is our ticket into heaven and thus is our security blanket. That is our idol that we don't want to part with. And that is why the worldly wise men of this world are so endearing to us. The true gospel is thus offensive to us for it is foreign to us for we are willingly ignorant that the fountain of all evil in this world flows right out of our own heart. None of us natural men Americans are going to deny we are liars by nature unless we be laughed off the stage. So when the bondage of the will preachers begin to use self-evident truths to prove original sin as sin and is the genesis from which all evil flows in this world, our fast food free will preachers and friends begin to become unhinged because it becomes clearly obvious very quickly that they cannot win the doctrinal debate for free will is a fiction by self-evident truths. Thus, they know they cannot twist self-evident truths without looking like a fool and thus end up in character assassination of the preacher whether they like it or not. All religions are made up of fast food free will preachers. And thus, the only thing that they have to offer is the fig leaves of morality. They may disguise the fig leaves of morality as a righteousness. But in the end, as you press them harder and harder, they are preaching 
self-righteousness and not the righteousness of God. For no one can flee to the righteousness of God apart from being convicted that original sin is sin and is ineradicable and thus condemning us to hell. And so then, the next obvious question is this. Can the righteousness of God be uncoupled from the conviction that original sin is sin and is condemning us to hell? Does the necessity of the righteousness of God grow in proportion to the increase of the conviction of original sin? Answer, absolutely it does. Why is that? Once we begin to comprehend that the fig leaves of morality only can cover up our original sin and not eradicate them, common sense tells us that we must reject the fig leaves of morality as a means of salvation. Therefore, the more we use the law to see and feel the evil proclivities of our heart, the more the burden on our back begins to grow. And as a result, our cry for mercy increases, leading us to a repentant heart. And it is with that repentant heart, Jesus offers us an escape from the wrath of his Father's wrath upon us by faith in his righteousness that he procured for us to make us holy and acceptable to his Father in heaven. Now, as natural men Americans, we can feel the weight of original sin to a certain extent. But because we are born into this world in love with ourselves, we cannot and will not voluntarily condemn ourselves before our Father in heaven. But at the moment we are made a new creation, our heart is supernaturally circumcised and we see the absolute horrid and condemnable evil in our sin nature that our Father in heaven sees. And we immediately are in agreement with our Father in heaven that we should be condemned to hell. And thus we are now humble enough that Jesus can impute his righteousness to us via faith. And thus we are saved by faith and the righteousness of God. Former Mr. Morality speaks to his brethren in Rome concerning this. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. This is simply the covenant of works, which demands perfection. The Jews were commanded to be circumcised, that is, in the flesh. But if they failed to keep the law perfectly, the circumcision of the flesh counted for nothing. For none of us will go to heaven unless we are holy. Romans 2.25 again. For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, which all the Jews were, for God demands perfection. But if thou be a breaker of the law, 
thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Verse 26, therefore, if the uncircumcision, like us Gentile Americans, keep the righteousness of the law, and the only way we can keep the righteousness of the law is if our heart has been spiritually circumcised and we see the evil as God does and condemn ourselves to hell. And thus, our Father, seeing we feel we do not deserve his Son's fulfillment of the law for us, seeing that we are humble, that is, he offers his son's righteousness to us by faith as our ticket into heaven. Again, from the top, Romans 2.25, for circumcisions, that would be the Jews, verily profiteth if thou, you Jews, keep the law, that is perfectly, but if thou be a breaker of the law, which they all are because we have a sin nature, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. In order to go to heaven, we have to be holy. So what difference does it make whether or not we are circumcised or not circumcised? 26. Therefore, if the uncircumcision, which would be the Gentiles or us Gentile Americans, if, if we Gentile Americans are not circumcised and we keep the righteousness of the law, that is, we keep the law perfectly, and the only way that can happen is if we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is, if the second Adam keeps the moral law for us. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision. If we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are holy and thus our uncircumcision counts as circumcision. Verse 27, And shall not uncircumcision, that would be us Gentile Americans, Again, and shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, that is, the new nature. If we are a new creation, we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And thus, therefore, we have fulfilled the moral law because he fulfilled it for us. Again, verse 27. And shall not uncircumcision, that would be us Gentile Americans or the Gentiles in general, and shall not the Gentiles, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, if the Gentiles have fulfilled the law because they have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, shall not the Gentiles judge thee the Jews, who by the letter and circumcision thus transgress the law. The Jews, as well as all of us humans, 
transgress the law because we are born under the covenant of works, which the first Adam was under, which demanded perfection, which is impossible. Thus, we, as well as the Jews, transgress the law no matter how hard we or they try. In other words, the fig leaves of morality can only cover over our sin nature, not eradicate it. Whereas the Gentile, he is speaking of, were made new creations, and thus they were under the grace of the second Adam, who fulfilled the moral law for us via faith. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew. That is, he is not a true Jew. Or if we're thinking of the Gentiles, he is not a true Christian, which is one outwardly. That is, they have an outward profession of Christianity, but no reality in their heart. Again, verse 28, for he is not a true Jew or true Christian, which is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Likewise, outward water baptism does not make us a true Christian. Just because the Jews were circumcised or we natural men Americans are water baptized does not make us a true Jew nor a true Christian. Verse 29. But he is a true Jew or a true Christian which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. Translation, if our heart has been supernaturally circumcised by God, we see our heart as he does, thus feeling condemned to hell, we flee to the righteousness of God by faith, making our father in heaven, sons, perfect obedience to be as our own perfect obedience and thus making us holy and fit for heaven. Moses speaks to his people about how the Lord will circumcise their hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord, thy God, will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, in order that thou mayest live. But the only way we can love Jesus is to keep his commandments perfectly. John 14, verse 15. If ye love me, that is Jesus, keep my commandments. But Jesus demands perfection and nothing less. Matthew 5, 48. I command you, I, Jesus, command you, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. There is no way to keep Jesus' commandments perfectly apart from the imputed righteousness of God via faith. So what have we learned? But that not until our heart is circumcised by God that we will be in full agreement with our Father in heaven 
that we should be condemned to hell, humbling us enough that now Jesus can impute his righteousness to us, making us holy. So we see that without the damnable, evil proclivities of our sin nature coming alive to us, we will never reject the fig leaves of morality as our security blanket and thus flee to the righteousness of God because it's the only option. It is the only way to become holy that Jesus would fulfill the commandments for us. Former Mr. Morality gives his own personal testimony of how his fig leaves of morality died a death. He proclaims to his brethren in Rome that if they didn't as natural men, and that would mean also us natural men Americans, that if we have not had a spiritual death, the covenant of works which demands perfection is still condemning us to hell. We must have a spiritual death before we can flee to the righteousness of God for salvation by faith. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Know ye, my brethren in Rome, for I speak to them that know the law. The true Christian knows the law. In Romans seven fourteen, it says that the law is spiritual. So only the spiritual know the spiritual. The true Christian knows that God demands perfection. The true Christian knows that the law is to be used to not cover up the evil proclivities of our heart, but is to be used to expose the evil proclivities of our heart. So the, so the true Christian knows, number one, that the law demands perfection. Number two, knows that he is not to use the law to cover over the evil proclivities of his heart, but to use the law to expose the evil proclivities of his heart. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, the true function of the law, which I just described. How that the law, that is the covenant of works, hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth, that is spiritually. There has to be a spiritual death in order for us to have a spiritual resurrection and become a new creation. Again, Romans 7, 1, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. That is, that the covenant of works demands perfection. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. How that the law has dominion over a man as long as he liveth. All of us natural men Americans are born in this world believing our fig leaves of morality are our security blanket, our idol, and must die a spiritual death by us seeing that these fig leaves of morality can only cover over the original sin and not eradicate it. 
thus cannot make us holy and fit for heaven. Once we use the law not to cover over our sin nature with fig leaves of morality, but we use the law to expose the evil proclivities of our heart, we totally must reject the fig leaves of morality. That is, our fig leaves of morality must be put to death that we might flee to the righteousness of Christ by faith to make us holy. Again, the fig leaves of morality are in our DNA as our ticket into heaven. And it is very difficult for us to part from this idol. For we believe that this idol will get us to heaven. So to part from this idol takes a supernatural circumcision of the heart before we see the reality that the fig leaves of morality can't get us to heaven. And thus there must be another option, which is the righteousness of God by faith. Former Mr. Morality makes this clear to his brethren in Rome in several different verses. Let us first look at Romans 10, verse 2. For I, former Mr. Morality, bear them, our fast food free will friends, record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is ignorant of the covenant of grace, in which the second Adam, Jesus, does what the first Adam failed to do. He fulfills the moral law for us as a gift to us. And our fast food free will friends going about to establish their own righteousness through the fig leaves of morality, which do not make them holy and fit for heaven. And thus our fast food free will friends have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That is the covenant of grace that Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us. Verse four, for Christ is, is the end of the law. He's the end of the covenant of works. We are no longer under the law which demands perfection as the first Adam was. For Christ is the end of the law. And why is he the end of the law? For he fulfilled the moral law for us. For Christ is the end of the law for self-righteousness. He's the end of the law for the fig leaves of morality because he fulfilled the moral law for us as a gift to us that we obtain through faith. For Christ is the end of the law for self-righteousness to everyone that believeth. That is, flees to the covenant of grace by faith or by believing Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us. Now, one of our original questions was, can the righteousness of God, the covenant of grace, that is, that Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us, can it be uncoupled from original sin? Not only before we are saved, but after we are saved? Answer, no. 
4. Until we use the law to expose the evil proclivities of our heart, that they are ineradicable and are condemning us to hell, we will never flee to the righteousness of Christ as our ticket into heaven. Consequently, original sin and the righteousness of God are inseparable. That is, they are coupled together. When we use the law not to cover over the evil proclivities of our heart, but use the law to expose the evil proclivities of our heart, making the evil proclivities of our heart come alive to us, our fig leaves of morality will become useless to us and die a spiritual death that we might flee to the righteousness of God by faith to make us holy. Now, former Mr. Morality gives us his own personal testimony. Verse 9. For I, former Mr. Morality, was alive without the law once. Well, when was the Apostle Paul ever without the law? He was a Pharisee. He was the Hebrew of the Hebrews, of a tribe of Benjamin. If you were moral, he says, I was more moral. He always had the law. But the law to him was like it is to everybody else born into this world. It was the fig leaves of morality. He was using the law to cover over the evil proclivities of his heart rather than expose them. And so in reality, he was without the law because the law is spiritual and he wasn't spiritual. And therefore, he did not know that the law demanded perfection and that the law was to be used to expose the evil proclivities of our heart, not cover over them. And thus he was without the law. For I was alive without the law. But when the commandment came, at that moment, when I was being converted, the commandment came in such a way that I realized that God demanded perfection and that the law was to be used to expose the evil proclivities of my heart. And when the evil proclivities of my heart were exposed, they came alive to me and I saw all the evil. The fountain of all evil in this world was right in my own heart. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, the sin revived. That is, my sin nature revived. My sin nature came alive. And I died. Well, what died? His idol, his fig leaves of morality died. And losing their grip, the burden on his back was loosed from his back and fell into the sepulcher. And he was free to flee to the righteousness of God by faith. And now the covenant of works no longer had dominion over him. My sin nature came alive and I died in those fig leaves of morality that I thought were ordained to eternal life I found were leading me straight to hell. But now the fig leaves of morality being dead, the law throws me to the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy. And I told my brethren in Galatia, I, the Apostle Paul, am now 
presently as a Christian crucified. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but it is Christ that lives in me, and the life I now live is not by my own faith, not by my natural man faith, but by the faith of Jesus Christ that was imputed to me at the moment I was made a new creation. And so I am continually being crucified by the law, making me fall to the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy. And he is continually lifting me up, wrapping me in his robe of righteousness and loving me, saying, my father's wrath is subdued. I have fulfilled the moral law for you. Just believe me by faith. Again, verse 9, Romans chapter 7. For I, the Apostle Paul, was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin, that is my sin nature revived, that is my sin nature came alive and I died. Verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, those fig leaves of morality that were ordained to life, I found to be unto death. They were leading me to hell. Now, skipping forward to chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. We as natural men Americans, just as the Jews, are weak in the flesh because we cannot keep the law perfectly, which the covenant of works demands. Again, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Now, how did Jesus condemn sin in the flesh? He voluntarily allowed his Father in heaven to take the elect's sin nature and put it upon him. He who knew no sin was Jesus who kept the law perfectly for 33 years and then was made sin. That is, he voluntarily allowed his Father to make him original sin. Why? In order that we might be made the righteousness of God. That is, that the righteousness of God might be imputed to us, that our Father in heaven might see his Son's obedience as our own obedience. Again, verse 3, For what the law could not do, the covenant of works could not make us holy, because we have a sin nature. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that is for the sin nature, condemned sin in the flesh. Verse four, why? In order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Therefore, if we are a new creation, the perfect obedience of the law is fulfilled in us if we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
let us keep in mind that the law is called spiritual in Romans seven fourteen. So the new creation understands the spiritual. And therefore, the new creation knows that the law makes us feel the weight of our original sin. And we also know that the law demands perfection. And thus, as we look at the law as a Christian, the law throws us to the feet of Jesus, for we are feeling the weight of our original sin. And we also know that the law demands perfection, which we cannot do. So we cry out for mercy. And while we're crying out for mercy, Jesus is simultaneously reaching down and giving us a hand up and wrapping his robe of righteousness around us. And we feel his loving arms then embracing us and saying unto us, Fear not, my father's wrath is subdued, for I have fulfilled the moral law for you. Just believe me by faith, and it will be counted to you as righteousness, that is, as perfect obedience in my father's sight so hopefully it is perfectly clear that original sin is sin cannot be uncoupled from hungering and thirsting after righteousness as we begin to understand the deep concepts of doctrine we will find that many parables and verses that may appear to be voicing different concepts are in fact voicing the same concept. For example, Jesus in his Beatitudes, we find this same concept we described above is seen in the following verses. Jesus exhorts us, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor means in the Old Testament is poor and needy. It means that we are spiritual beggars because we cannot follow the law perfectly Thus, we are falling short of the glory of God. And if we are not poor in spirit, we are not a true Christian. But if we are poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So we come to our Lord Jesus as spiritual beggars. Verse 4, blessed are they that mourn. What are they mourning over? We're mourning as Christians over the weight of our original sin. The Apostle Paul says, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. That is my evil sin nature is present with me. And therefore we are in a state of repentance because we're always mourning over our original sin. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. And as we're mourning, Jesus again lifting us up and he's wrapping us in his loving arms. Verse 5, blessed are they that are meek. And when we're in the state of repentance, it makes us meet, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, now, we're, we're poor in spirit, we're mourning over our original sin, and thus we are meek. And then verse 6 says, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. We are hungering and thirsting after righteousness because all we can see 
is the evil proclivities of our heart. Faith is defined to be the certainty of the things not seen. And they're not seen because they're hidden behind their opposite. So all we can see is the evil proclivities of our heart. And then we can't see the righteousness of God. So it's by faith we believe in the righteousness of God that is making us legally obedient in the eyes of our Father in heaven. And thus, only seeing the evil proclivities of our heart and feeling the weight of those evil proclivities of our heart, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, for we will be filled. What are we filled with? We are filled with the love of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Verse 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So as Jesus is lifting us up, wrapping in us in his loving arms and in his robe of righteousness, saying to us, Fear not, my Father's wrath has been subdued. Believe on me. That is, have faith that I have fulfilled the moral law for you. And in my Father's eyes, it will be counted as your own perfect obedience. Again, Galatians chapter 5. Verse 6, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which keeps on working by love. This love is an experiential love, far superior to any human love. Far superior to the love of our spouse, far superior to the love of our children, it is a love in which the true Christian experiences, especially when in the Word of God. Or another name for Jesus is the Word of God. The Spirit of Christ dwells in the Christian. So when the Christian meditates upon the Word of God, it is as if he is talking to his spouse, for the church is the bride of Christ. And thus, as a true Christian meditates upon the word of God, he experienced these, the love of Jesus Christ. And it is that love of Jesus Christ that drives us to go out and preach of Jesus Christ each and every day. Again, it is faith that worketh by love. Since in the true Christian, the fig leaves of morality have died a death. The law now throws the true Christian to the feet of Jesus. And since the true Christian can't achieve anything by works, it is in that brokenness and falling short of the glory of God that the true Christian looks to the promises of God. God promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. But Sarah was barren and all Abraham and Sarah could do 
was look to the promises of God that God might fulfill his promise someday. And it was in her barrenness they drew near to our Lord Jesus, waiting and hoping and believing that he in his perfect timing would provide for them that child in which he would make of them a great nation. And it wasn't until she was 90 and Abraham was 100 that that child came. But during that 25 to 30 year time period, there was a lot of falling down before our Lord Jesus, crying out for mercy, hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God that the law might be fulfilled in them who walked after the spirit, but not after the flesh. Abraham and Sarah believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness or as perfect obedience. And even at a one point in time, they got frustrated and figured that since Sarah was barren, that maybe God wanted them to have the child through her Egyptian servant, Hagar. And so Abraham married Hagar and Ishmael was born, but God was not happy with them. And it was not until 15 or so years later that Sarah would become pregnant when she was 90 and Abraham was 100. For all the promises of God in Christ are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by Abraham and us, because these promises will be 100% fulfilled, not by our obedience, but when we believe by faith that the law will be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For it is with a broken spirit and a contrite repentant heart that we as Christians draw nigh unto the Lord Jesus Christ putting our faith in the promises for now as a new creation we know that our self-righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags to God and thus by faith we believe that the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit that is that broken and contrite heart or as Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit, that is the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they who mourn over their original sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are they who hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God, for they will be filled with the love of God. We only hunger and thirst after righteousness when we are mourning over our original sin, for we are comforted by Christ's love, making us meek, not desiring to justify ourselves through our self-righteousness, but by hungering and thirsting after Christ's righteousness, that we might be filled with his experiential peace and love, knowing he has fulfilled the moral law for us as his Father in heaven's wrath has been subdued. And as we do this, then innately we will put all our hope in those promises. And sometimes those promises are not answered for years. 
For example, God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. But it wasn't until over 500 years later that Moses took the Israelites through the Red Sea, spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then it was Joshua that led him into the land to take over that land, which is now called Israel. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. By faith, Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac, Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because Abraham judged God faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in the multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims here on this earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of the country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So again, it is important that we not forget that we only hunger and thirst over the righteousness of God when we are mourning over our original sin. For we are comforted by Christ's love, making us meek, not desiring to justify ourselves through our self-righteousness, but by hungering and thirsting after Christ's righteousness that we might be filled with his experiential peace and love, knowing he has fulfilled the moral law for us and his Father in heaven's wrath has been subdued. Now let us keep in mind what has been mentioned many times in previous messages, that the new spiritual creation is paradoxical in nature, and that is why our fast food, free will, natural men preachers never mention the paradoxical nature of the spiritual new creation, for they themselves have never been made a new creation, which is 100% free of any of our fingerprints upon that new creation. It is solely of God. Some of our fast food free will friends will admit to the necessity of the righteousness of God, that it makes us legally holy, but will begin to dance, twist, or even deny that we are to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God moment by moment. But we who are new creations innately know the paradoxical nature of the new creation. And thus we know that the commands of God can only condemn us. And thus we are constantly being thrown to the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy. 
that Jesus might be continually giving us a hand up, saying unto us, Fear not, my Father's wrath is subdued. Just believe on me that I have fulfilled the moral law for you. To illustrate this, let us look at a verse in the King James Bible used by the bondage of the will preachers versus the same verse out of the New American Standard Bible, which is our fast food, free will friends, most conservative Bible. Out of the King James Bible, former Mr. Morality in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In our Fast Food Free Will Friends Bible, the New American Standard, it says this, I have been crucified, which does not put the emphasis on being continually crucified. At the moment we are made a new creation, we are declared holy, that is, justified, innocent in God's courtroom, because we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is Jesus' fulfillment of the moral law for us, making us appear perfectly obedient in our Father in Heaven's eyes. This is a one-time-forever thing, but paradoxically, we are crucified moment by moment, keeping us in a state of repentance. This being crucified moment by moment sends our free will friends into a tizzy because they, yet to be made a new creation, are clueless of the paradoxical nature of the new creation. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek while the Old Testament in Hebrew. Koine Greek is much more accurate than our English language. In Koine Greek, there are two past tenses, the aorist and the perfect. In English, if we say that a house was built in 1903, we don't know if that house is still standing. It may or may not be. But in the Greek, if it's in the perfect, and we say it was built in 1903, then we still know it is standing today. So when the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified, that means at a certain point in time on Damascus Road, he was crucified by the law and he is still being crucified by the law because it was the law that made him see his sin nature. I was out the law once, but when the commandment came, my sin nature came alive and I, and I died. So we see our fast food friends even distort and misstate the translation of the Bible in order to fit it into their own narrative. The law demands perfection, and the law is to be used to expose the evil proclivities of our hearts. So the law is continually throwing us to the feet of Jesus, and we're crying out for mercy that he might be giving us a hand up, saying, fear not, I have fulfilled the moral law for you. Be not afraid of my father's wrath any longer. Former Mr. Morality writes to his brethren in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. There are countless examples of this paradoxical nature of the new creation. But that is a subject for another message. So we see that the new creation not only knows innately 
that the law is to be used to expose the evil proclivities of our heart, but also demands perfection, thus holiness hostage, knowing our fig leaves of morality cannot eradicate the evil proclivities of our heart, and thus the new creation hungers and thirsts for the righteousness of God. For the new creation knows he is continually falling short of the glory of God, and yet he desires with all his heart to be holy or perfectly righteous. With very little commentary, let us listen carefully to former Mr. Morality exhorting his brethren in Rome. Chapter 3, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all, them that believe for there is no difference that is between the jew and the greek verse 23 for all the true believers that is have sinned and come short of the glory of god verse 24 being justified that is the true believers being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that is a mercy seat, through faith in his blood, to declare Christ's righteousness, that is the righteousness of God, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Verse 26, to declare, I, the Apostle Paul, say, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, not our self-righteousness, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which keeps on believing in Jesus. Verse 27, where is the boasting then? It is excluded by what law? By the law of works? Nay, but by the law of of faith that is faith in the righteousness of jesus christ therefore we conclude that a man is justified made innocent in god's courtroom that's what justified means therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law without our fig leaves of morality without our self-righteousness therefore our sin nature cannot be uncoupled from the righteousness of God, lest we lose the blessings of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that we might be filled with the unmatchable love. For faith in the righteousness of God worketh by love. Now, former Mr. Morality writes to his brethren in Galatia the following. Chapter 6, verse 13. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that is, the Jews, because they were circumcised, they want the Gentiles to be circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. Verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is, is crucified unto me. That is me, former Mr. Morality. 
the world is dead unto the new creation. For the moment we are made a new creation, we know we have passed from death unto eternal life. And the world appears to us to be just like we were before we were made a new creation. That is dead fish floating downstream. Again, verse 14, but God forbid that I, the Apostle Paul, should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I, the Apostle Paul, am crucified unto the world. Then says former Mr. Morality, I am crucified unto the world. That is, the world no longer has anything to offer me. The effectual experience of Jesus' love of God within me far surpasses any love in this world, even the love of my spouse and children. And thus, what would I want from the world? It is nothing but emptiness, nothing but dead-end streets, nothing but a dead fish like I was as a Pharisee, floating downstream, completely ignorant to who the true Jesus was. As I, as a Pharisee, out of envy, wanted to crucify God himself. For that is what I did when I and my fellow colleagues handed Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. I am no longer a dead fish Pharisee floating downstream. But now, as a new creation, I agree with that idiot fisherman Peter, who knew who Jesus was and I didn't. Fisherman Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, in order that ye may grow thereby. Verse 3, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And in chapter 1, verse 8, Fisherman Peter says this, Whom having not seen, that is Jesus, ye love, in whom though ye see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And chapter 2, verse 9, Fisherman Peter says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, in order that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, Which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Verse 11, and Fisherman Peter goes on, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that they, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. 
And I, myself, former Mr. Morality, wrote to my brethren in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, who, that is Jesus, hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, I wrote to my brethren in, in Ephesus, Wherefore, remember that ye being in past times Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, that would be the Jews, in the flesh made by hands. Verse 12, that at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh. Verse 19, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto and a temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. I wrote to my brethren in Galatia, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Once we become a new creation, we, new spiritual eyes, new spiritual ears, our natural man American stony heart, stony unrepentant heart, has been transplanted with a new, tender, repentant heart of flesh. All is new when we become a new creation. The moment we become a new creation, we will innately know that we had zero fingerprints upon our new creation. It was solely of God, just as our natural birth. It will be the greatest moment in our life. So it is well worth agonizing to enter in at the straight gate. For many will seek to enter in, but they will not be able to. Let us as Americans be the ones that will enter in, not the ones that will not be able to. So now let us listen carefully to Jesus' following words. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone saith unto me, Jesus, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. The only way that we can do the will of the Father is to follow his commandments perfectly. And the only way that we can follow the commandments perfectly is if we believe by faith that the second Adam, Jesus, fulfilled the moral law for us. Let us read verse 21 again. Not everyone that saith 
unto me, Jesus, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 22. Many will say to me, Jesus, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Verse 23. And then I, Jesus, will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, that is, fig leaves of morality. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. Verse 25. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Verse 26. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. Verse 27. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Verse 28. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Verse 29. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. And now we will conclude with Jesus' words first, and then, and then correlating words from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Jesus is exhorting us natural men, Americans. I command you, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. I command you, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Verse 14. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Verse 15. Therefore, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now, let us go to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and his version of what it is like to enter in at the straight gate. Let us remind ourselves that Christian entered the straight gate with the heavy burden of original sin on his back, knowing the futility of gaining salvation through the fig leaves of morality. Christian has just entered straight as a gate and narrow as a way, and so let us commence with Pilgrim's Progress. Quote, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. 
He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be to thee. So the first said unto him, thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with the change of raiment. The third also set a mark in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, that he should give it in at the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Now let us look at the first of the shining ones. And he says, peace be to thee, thy sins be forgiven thee. We have mentioned many times that the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made original sin. And so each of us Americans that are of the elect, he takes our sin nature, our original sin, and voluntarily has his Father put it on him. Thus the Father has no choice but to send his own son to experience hell. That is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins. God can't forgive our sins the way we forgive. The only way that he can forgive is if his son takes our place in hell. For the Father in heaven is a God of laws. And the only way for us to not go to hell is to have someone else go to hell for us, which would be Jesus himself. But Jesus 
taking on our original sin and going to hell for us gets us out of jail, but it will not make us holy. In order to get back into heaven, we have to be holy. What is the definition of holy? But simply that our Father in heaven's commandments have to be fulfilled perfectly. The first Adam was holy. Only reason he was holy, he kept the commandments perfectly until he was deceived by Satan and then took on Satan's nature. Even though Jesus took on hell for us, without the resurrection, none of us would go to heaven because the significance of the resurrection to us is that the Father in heaven could not have raised him from the dead unless he had fulfilled the law perfectly for 33 years while here on earth. So when we think of the resurrection, we should think that Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us. But as we have mentioned many times, it is in the DNA of every human that our fig leaves of morality will outweigh our evil. And therefore, every one of us think our fig leaves of morality will get us into heaven, that our good will outweigh our evil. Another word for fig leaves of morality is self-righteousness. And in Isaiah, it says that all our righteousness, all our self-righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags. So John Bunyan says that we must be stripped of our rags because we all have the fig leaves of morality, the self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags to God, nothing more than a dirty menstrual cloth. And those rags must be stripped from us and fall into the sepulcher. So now let us read what the second shining one did to Christian. The second shining one stripped Christian of his rags and clothed him with the change of raiment. And what was that change of raiment? It's the wedding garment. It is the righteousness of God. It is that Jesus fulfilled the moral law for Christian. So Jesus took on hell for us and Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us. When he took on hell for us, that was his passive obedience. When he fulfilled the moral law for us, that was his active obedience. The two of them together called the righteousness of God. And when we, by faith, believe the righteousness of God, we are fit for heaven. But how do we know for sure it happened? What does God do to make it 100% sure that this all happened to us? Let us look at what the third shining one did to Christian. The third also set a mark in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. And what is this seal? But it is the down payment that God gives us to assure us that what just happened to us is real. And what is that down payment? But he gives us the Holy Spirit 
And the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are a child of God and we cry, Abba, Father. That spirit is the seal. It wasn't there before. It's not our conscience. We now have a foreign object in us, the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the spirit. We can quench the spirit. It's real. Former Mr. Morality, one of the worst persecutors of the church, one of the Pharisees, one of the leading Pharisees that helped hand Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified, now speaks of this experience to his Ephesian brethren. Ephesus chapter 1, verse 4. According as he, that is our Father in heaven, hath chosen us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. And the only way we can be holy is if we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we should be holy and without blame, without blame, because Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us. So there's no way for the Father to condemn us because Jesus has fulfilled the moral law for us. And without blame, before him in love. And faith worketh by love. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We are born into this world as captives to Satan. Satan is our spiritual father. He is the strong man arm that Jesus must bind and then deliver us from him and make us a new creation in order that our Father in heaven might adopt us. And thus we become a son of God. Verse 11, in whom, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him, not us, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, not our free will. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, not our glory. None of us can glory in his presence. Who first trusted in Christ, verse 13, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, which is the earnest, which is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Hopefully we notice that it was according to his will that we are chosen. It was before the foundation of the world that the Father and the Son made a covenant to 
save the elect. But none of us know whether or not we are of the elect when we are born into this world, especially the Apostle Paul had no idea he was one of the elect. Thus, we all have hope as long as we are breathing that we may be one of the elect and our Lord Jesus will find us and save us. We as natural man Americans may have been agonizing for years to enter in at the straight gate. And it seems like the Lord is never going to find us. But we must remember that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But beloved, that is Peter speaking to the believers, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, that is, the elect, and none of us know if we are one of the elect, but is long-suffering to usward, as he was with the Apostle Paul, who persecuted the Christians for years before Jesus found him, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any of the elect should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So let us be encouraged. Let us never let our foot off the accelerator. Let us agonize to enter in to the straight gate. The kingdom of heaven allows violence, and the violent take the kingdom of heaven by force. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth, that is, allows, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. It is worth giving it everything we have to enter in at the straight gate. For the new creation is a dramatic change. It is not the change like our fast food free will friends offer us. This is a complete change of nature. Unlike our fast food free will friends conversion. The true Christian has absolutely no fingerprints on his being made a new creation, just as our natural birth. And we know experientially that we have this foreign object dwelling in us that was never there before. That is the Holy Spirit. And we are experiencing the love of Christ. And we have power over sin that we never had before. Those of us that may be entrapped in drugs, alcohol, sexual addiction, etc., etc., will have the power 
to slay these addictions. Also, as new creations, we now pick up our Bible and we read the verses that we had just read above. And it confirms to us that what we are experiencing is scriptural. The scriptures become a cross-reference. And now we cannot put down our Bibles for we are reading about our own experience. The Psalms are now 100% alive to us. For the first times in our lives, we now fear God, which becomes the beginning of our knowledge, the beginning of our wisdom. And we experience this power over sin that we never had before. And with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, prayer is flowing out of us like never before, etc., etc. Now, as new creations, we are way ahead of the curve, repenting over the evil proclivities of our heart before we ever commit an act of sin. And thus, we are pulling out of the pollutions of the world at a great rate as our acts of sin continue to decrease. Let us conclude this message. As we look at Daniel, who came in contact with the pre-incarnate Christ, and let us observe how he responded. Let us notice how similar his experience is to what we have been describing so far in this message. This experience of Daniel should encourage us, natural men Americans, to agonize to find and then enter in at the straight gate. For Daniel's experiential approach as he comes in contact with the pre-incarnate Christ is very similar to what the new creation experiences on a daily basis. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. Verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. Verse 3. I ate no pleasant bread. Neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Verse 4. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hideko, verse 5. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. Verse 6, his body also was like the burl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms as his feet, like in color to polish brass, and the voice of his words like a voice of a multitude. Verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision. That is just like the Apostle Paul on Damascus Road. But a great quaking fell upon them, 
so that they fled to hide themselves. Verse 8, Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned into corruption, and I retained no strength. He was seeing the evil proclivities of his heart. Verse 9, Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. Verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees, and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Verse 12, Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Verse 14, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. Verse 15, And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face towards the ground, and I became dumb. Verse 16, And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. Verse 17, For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Verse 18, Then there came again and touched me, one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. Verse 19, And said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Verse 20, Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I came unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Gracia shall come. Verse 21, But I will show thee, that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. And now let us end with Fisherman John's experience with the glorified Christ, that is the Christ after he had risen from the dead. Revelation chapter one, verse 12. And I, Fisherman John, turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned, 
I saw seven golden candlesticks, verse 13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Verse 15, and his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Verse 17, and when I, fisherman John, saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, and I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Jesus then goes on to evaluate the seven churches in which he is speaking of. And the first church that he evaluates is the church of Ephesus. Above, we read from the Apostle Paul's epistle or his letter to the church of Ephesus in which Paul said that he was chosen before the foundation of the world and that the Holy Spirit was the down payment to our inheritance. Jesus tells Fisherman John to write down his rebuke of the church of Ephesus who had lost its first love, that is, his love towards him. Here is that rebuke. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, which is most likely the pastor, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, that is Jesus, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And the seven golden candlesticks were the, the churches. So Jesus walks amidst the churches of America. Verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Verse 3, And hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. 
So in these verses, he has been complimenting them on the good things that they have been doing. But now Jesus is going to rebuke this church of Ephesus. Verse four, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. I, Jesus, have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And what is that first love? But Jesus. And how do we lose that first love? But when we lose fellowship. And how do we lose fellowship? But when we are no longer in repentance. That the law is no longer throwing us to the feet of Jesus, crying out for mercy. And then Jesus is lifting us up, wrapping us in his robe of righteousness and embracing us in his love, saying unto us, Fear not, my Father's wrath has been subdued. Believe me that I have fulfilled the moral law for me. Hunger and thirst for my righteousness, and I will fill you with my love. For faith worketh by love. Verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent. It is through repentance and meditating upon the word of God that we maintain a lively fellowship with our Lord Jesus. And repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Verse six, but this thou hast, Thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now he gives the promises. If they will overcome, these are the promises that he will give to them. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of of the paradise of God. And now let us end with his rebuke of the seventh church, which is the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter three, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, Jesus says, write this to fisherman John. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Verse 15, I, Jesus, know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. Verse 16, so then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I, Jesus, will spew thee out of my mouth. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. In other words, the church of the Laodiceans were no longer poor in spirit. They were no longer mourning over their original sin. They were no longer meek and they were no longer hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God, which is the white raiment or the wedding garment. 
They were no longer using the law to throw them to the feet of Jesus that they might see the evil proclivities of their heart and have a repentant heart and thus hungering and thirsting after righteousness that they might be filled with the love of God for faith keeps on working by love. Again, verse 17, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor, that is poor in spirit, and blind and naked. So what does Jesus tell them to do? Verse 18, I, Jesus, counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that is the wedding garment or the righteousness of God, and buyest of me, that is without money, white raiment. Why? In order that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Verse 19. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. I command you be zealous therefore and repent. Verse 20. Behold, I, Jesus, Stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I, Jesus, will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Verse 21. Now here's the reward. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Think about that. I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Verse 22, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, as we have mentioned at the beginning of this message, the true Christian lives a life of repentance. And now we have seen that Jesus tells both of these churches, the church of Ephesus and the church of Laodicea, the church of Ephesus who first lost its love, and then the church of Laodicea that was lukewarm, Jesus tells them that they must repent. So we see the importance of repentance. If we're not in a state of repentance, we lose our first love, which is Jesus. If we're not in a state of repentance, we become lukewarm and Jesus will spew us out. So let us again review what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, who lost its first love. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I, Jesus, will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou will repent. In other words, Jesus is going to shut the church down. And now what 
Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, who had become lukewarm, and Jesus said that he was going to spew them out of his mouth. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be ye therefore zealous, church of Laodicea, and repent. And now let us remind ourselves what Martin Luther said in his 95 Thesis. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, 17, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance, not just repenting over the evil proclivities of our heart. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. When we are repenting over the evil proclivities of our heart, we're way ahead of the curve. And so we are catching our sin before it becomes an act of sin. And so our acts of sin reduce. Number four, the penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self, that is true inner repentance, namely till our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we will never be out of a state of repentance until the day we die. Martin Luther writes, and thus, we are all ready to say, I am a most wretched sinner, but seldom, if ever, does a man want to be a sinner. For what is it to be a sinner if not to be worthy of all punishment and trouble? Let us remember that a sinner is a lawbreaker. When you break the law, there's punishment. And to confess with your mouth that you are such a person, but to be unwilling to act like a sinner, this is hypocrisy. This is lying. For it befits a righteous man to have peace, glory, honor, and all good things. Therefore, if you deny that you are righteous, you must also deny these good things. And if you confess that you are a sinner, you must take punishments, injuries, and ignominy, that is public shame, as your own, your rightful possessions, but you must flee those things as belonging to someone else which belong only to the righteous men. Therefore, if shame or an insulting word, if beating or an injury, if condemnation or a disease befall you and you say, I do not deserve it, why must I endure it? An injury has been done unto me. I am innocent. Are you not thereby denying that you are 
a sinner. Are you not resisting God and with your mouth convicting yourself as a liar? For with all these things, God is proving that you are a sinner because he brings to you the things that befit a sinner and he cannot err or lie. But you rise up and contradict him, resisting and opposing him as if God were the one acting wickedly, foolishly, and dishonestly. And in this you are like those of whom we spake above. For those are factions and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness. For you also do not obey the truth, that is, the works of God, which have rightly come against you. But if you say, when these things happen, indeed, I surely deserve these things. I have been justly treated. I freely admit that I am a sinner so that all these things are just and true. I have certainly ascended against thee so that thy actions and thy words are justified and thou art the truthful and righteous God that are not mistaken concerning me. There is no lying in thee. For just as in all these things, thou dost show that I am a sinner. Behold, this is simple saying. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil which is in thy sight so that thou art justified in thy words. I am a most wretched sinner. Page 216, Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. So from God's perspective, we are either righteous in his sight, destined to heaven, or we are a sinner condemned to hell. There is no in-between in God's world. Just think, if all of us Americans thought ourselves as sinners, as Martin Luther just described, how the divorce rate would eventually return to less than 5%, how the lawsuits in America would become minimal, the crime rate would drop, the murder rate would drop, all because we are seeing ourselves as the sinners and thus lawbreakers and deserve the punishment that goes with that law breaking. The first Adam was holy and he was not a sinner and thus he deserved all good things, but he willingly chose to be deceived by Satan. And when he was deceived by Satan, he fell and took on the nature in likeness to Satan. And now let us finish reading the excerpt St. Augustine's Confessions of Sin. Quote, For there is an attractiveness in beautiful bodies, in gold and silver and all things, and in bodily touch. Sympathy hath much influence, and each other sense hath his proper object answerably tempered 
Worldly honor hath also its grace and the power of overcoming and of mystery. Whence springs also the thirst of revenge, but yet to obtain all these, we may not depart from thee, O Lord, nor decline from thy law. The life also which here we live hath its own enchantment through a certain proportion of its own and a correspondence with all things beautiful here below. Human friendship also is endeared with a sweet tie by reason of the unity formed of many souls. Upon occasion of all these and the like is sin committed, while through an immoderate inclination towards these goods of the lowest order, the better and higher are forsaken. Thou, our Lord God, thy truth and thy law. For these lower things have their delights, but not like my God, who made all things. For in him doth the righteous delight, and he is the joy of the upright in heart. When then we ask why a crime was done, we believe it not, unless it appear that there might have been some desire of obtaining some of those which we called lower goods or a fear of losing them. For they are beautiful and comely, although compared with those higher and beautific goods, they be abject and low. A man hath murdered another. Why? He loved his wife or his estate or would rob for his own livelihood or feared to lose some such things by him, or wronged, was on fire to be revenged. Would any commit murder upon no cause, delighted simply in murdering? Who would believe it? For as for that furious and savage man, of whom it is said that he was gratuitously evil, and cruel, yet is the cause assigned, lest, saith he, through idleness, hand or heart should grow inactive. And to what end? That through the practice of guilt, he might, having taken the city, attain to honors, empire, riches, and be freed from fear of the laws and his embarrassments from domestic needs and consciousness of villainies. So then not even Catiline himself loved his own villainies, but something else for whose sake he did them. What then did wretched I so love in thee, thou theft of mine, thou need of darkness in that sixteenth year of my age? Lovely thou wert not, because thou wert theft. But art thou anything, that thus I speak to thee? Fair were the pears we stole, because they were thy creation. Thou fairest of all, creator of all, thou good God. God, the sovereign good, and my true good. Fair were those pears, but not them did my wretched soul desire. For I had store of better, 
and those I gathered only that I might steal. For when gathered, I flung them away, my only feast therein being mine own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. For if aught of those pears came within my mouth, what sweetened it was the sin. And now, O Lord my God, I inquire what in that theft delighted me. And behold, it hath no loveliness. I mean, not such loveliness as in justice and wisdom, nor such as in the mind and memory and in senses and animal life of man, nor yet as the stars are glorious and beautiful in their orbs, or the earth or sea full of embryo life, replacing by its birth that which decayeth, nay, nor even the false and shadowy beauty which belongeth to deceiving vices. For so doth pride imitate exaltedness, whereas thou alone art God exalted over all. Ambition, what seeks it but honors and glory, whereas thou alone art to be honored above all and glorious forevermore. The cruelty of the great would fain be feared. But who is to be feared but God alone, out of whose power what can be wrested or withdrawn? When or where or whither or by whom? The tenderness of the wanton would fain be counted love, yet is nothing more tender than thy charity, nor is aught love more healthfully than that thy truth bright and beautiful above all. Curiosity makes semblance of a desire of knowledge, whereas thou supremely knowest all. Yea, ignorance and foolishness itself is cloaked under the name of simplicity and uninjuriousness, because nothing is found more single than thee, and what less injurious since they are his own works which injure the sinner. Yea, sloth would fain be at rest, but what stable rest besides the Lord? Luxury affects to be called plenty and abundance, but thou art the fullness and never-failing plentiness of incorruptible pleasures. Prodigality presents a shadow of liberality, but thou art the most overflowing giver of all good. Covetousness would possess many things, and thou possesses all things. Envy disputes for excellency. What more excellent than thou? Anger seeks revenge. Who revenges more justly than thou? Fear startles at things unwanted and sudden, which endangers things beloved, and takes forethought for their safety. But to thee, what unwanted or sudden or who separateth from thee what thou lovest? Or where but with thee is unshaken safety? Grief pines away for things lost, the delight of its desires, because it would have nothing taken from it as nothing can from thee. Thus doth the soul commit fornication. When she turns from thee, 
seeking without thee what she findeth not pure and untainted till she returns to thee. Thus all pervertedly imitate thee who remove far from thee and lift themselves up against thee. But even by thus imitating thee, they imply thee to be the creator of all nature, whence there is no place whither altogether to retire from thee. What then did I love in that theft? And wherein did I even corruptly and pervertedly imitate my Lord? Did I wish even by stealth to do contrary to thy law? Because by power I could not, so that being a prisoner, I might mimic a maimed liberty by doing with impunity things unpermitted me, a darkened likeness of thy omnipotency. Behold, thy servant fleeing from his Lord and obtaining a shadow. O rottenness, O monstrousness of life and depth of death. Could I like what I might not, only because I might not? What shall I render unto the Lord, that whilst my memory recalls these things, my soul is not affrighted at them? I will love thee, O Lord, and thank thee, and confess unto thy name, because thou hast forgiven me these so great and heinous deeds of mine, to thy grace I ascribe it, and to thy mercy that thou hast melted away my sins as it were ice. To thy grace I ascribe also whatsoever I have not done of evil. For what might I not have done, who even loved a sin for its own sake? Yea, all I confess to have been forgiven me, but what evils I committed by my own willfulness and what by thy guidance I committed not. What man is he who, weighing his own infirmity, dares to ascribe his purity and innocency to his own strength, that so he should love thee the less as if he had less needed thy mercy, whereby thou remittest sins to those that turn to thee. For whosoever called by thee followed thy voice and avoided those things which he reads me recalling and confessing of myself, let him not scorn me, who being sick was cured by that physician, that great physician, through whose aid it was that he was not or rather was less sick and for this let him love thee as much yea and more since by whom he sees me to have been recovered from such deep consumption of sin by him he sees himself to have been from the like consumption of sin preserved St. Augustine is deep, is he not? That is a deep reflection of sin. Now, to bring this message to a conclusion, let us review a few of the quotes from above. But even by thus imitating thee, 
they imply thee to be the creator of all nature, whence there is no place whither altogether to retire from thee. Maybe we want to be mighty, and we work hard to be the mightiest man in the world. But in comparison to the might of the Lord, it's nothing. So why not seek the Lord? Another quote, quote, What man is he who, weighing his own infirmity, dares to ascribe his purity and innocency to his own strength? For whatever purity he has is not of his own strength, but it was what was given to him by Christ. So why not look to Christ who is all purity? This passage of St. Augustine would be worth reading over and over again. Let us end by re-emphasizing the following quote from above. Behold, thy servant fleeing from his Lord and obtaining a shadow, O rottenness, O monstrousness of life and death of death, could I like what I might not only because I might not. What shall I render unto the Lord that whilst my memory recalls these things, my soul is not affrighted at them. I will love thee, O Lord, and thank thee, and confess unto thy name, because thou hast forgiven me these so great and heinous deeds of mine. To thy grace I ascribe it, and to thy mercy that thou hast melted away my sins as it were ice. To thy grace I ascribe also whatsoever I have not done of evil. For what might I not have done who even loved a sin for its own sake? Yea, all I confess have been forgiven me, both what evils I committed by my own willfulness and what by thy guidance I committed not. What man is he who, weighing his own infirmity, dares to ascribe his purity and innocency to his own strength, that so he should love thee the less as if he had less needed thy mercy? To be continued, may the Lord bless thee and keep thee in the name of Jesus. Amen.